0: Well, grab your Bibles, turn to Daniel 6. Daniel 6. As always, when it comes to business meeting, I've, I've never been more satisfied than uh, the way we are at East Frankfurt. Very grateful for y'all. Um, Daniel 6. So we have uh, made it all the way through the book of Daniel in our, our daily readings uh, through Discipleship 180. So uh, I believe we've read all six chapters this week. And uh, I I trust that Daniel's been a real blessing. As I mentioned Wednesday, uh, my expertise of 7 to 12 is significantly less than 1 to 6 because we go from biography to to prophecy. Uh, But no doubt, this is the story we know uh, the best. So uh, let's stand and read at a of God's Word. We'll read the famous story, maybe the first story we ever heard out of the Bible, that Noah's Ark, and that is uh, Daniel and the Lion's Den. I've never preached from this, so who knows what's going to happen. The writer of Daniel writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse one: It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. And this Daniel became distinguished among all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. The king planned to set him over the whole kingdom, then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find any connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects, of the satraps, the counselors, and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the covenant so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction." When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house, where he had windows in his upper chamber, open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said... Uh, before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within thirty days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, "The thing stands fast according to the law and the means of Persians which cannot be revoked." They answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and said, "His mind to deliver Daniel." He labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, No, O king, it is a law of the means and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance the king establishes can be changed. The king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king de- declared to Daniel, May your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet, with the signet of his lord's that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. And the king went to his palace And spent the night fasting, no diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions, and he came near the den where Daniel was. He cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm." And the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. The King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble with fear for the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to, to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Good us Lord in prayer. Our Father, I ask that you would be so kind as to give us understanding of this text, uh, though we may know it well through... Um, our childhood and adulthood. May we see it with fresh eyes. So open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our, our mouth, our hands and our feet. We would receive, we would believe, we would obey. May I decrease so you can increase. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. You're seated. One of my favorite presidents of the 20th century is President John F. Kennedy. And what's fascinating about Kennedy is he's a man who never wanted to be president to begin with never really wanted to go into politics. But following the death of his older brother, Kennedy, who was now, a JFK, who is now the oldest son of, uh, of the Kennedy brothers, was thrust by his father into the realm of politics. I'm sure you know he first became a senator and then from there became president. What he wanted to be was really more of an academic historian. His Harvard thesis was later published in the book entitled Why England Slept. And it's basically an exploration of British political failures in the 1930s, which he believed led to the, tra- the tragedy of World War II, which Kennedy fought in and nearly died. And of course, his, his older brother in a secret mission certainly did die. And that was what Kennedy wanted to do. He wanted to write history and particularly political historical history. But he wanted to be in an academic setting, not a political setting. Years later in the 1960s, I believe it was 1964, while senator, he, um, he wanted to, um, he had back issues. And so he, he started to study um, um, political courage, particularly among senators. And that study led to the publication of his most widely read book. Uh, known or entitled Profiles in Courage. I, I'm willing to bet you can go to the local library here and find it. I know it was in uh, the Harnsberger Library in Breckridge County when we lived there. Uh, and it is an exploration of eight former U.S. senators, which he highlighted as uh, people of courage. The most recognizable names, at least to me, include John Quincy Adams, who, of course, was the son of a president who became president himself and later returned to, the, to Congress even after his presidency. The other was Robert Taft, who himself um, served brief, briefly as as president. I do wonder in reading this book, if we were to write a similar book, a Profiles of Courage of Biblical Characters, I don't think there's any doubt that Daniel would be numbered among them. What we have here, not just here, is is a Jewish man living in a pagan culture Whom every day was a day of courage, and there is no better example of this than what it is we find here. In terms of context, I trust you're familiar with this, as we've already said. Daniel is broken down into two halves; it's one narrative and and, and two acts. The first is the biography of Daniel, uh, which which you've read this week, and the second is the prophecies of Daniel, uh, which I encourage you to read, Um, but don't ask me a lot of questions about it. Go to go to Danny with any questions you may have. I like Brian Chapel's summary of this in his book, The Gospel According to Daniel. Quote, In chapter 1, Daniel and his friends were kept healthy on a politically dangerous diet of vegetable soup as God communicated to his people, I remember you. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's multi-layered statue was displayed by a heavenly rock as God assured his people, I will rescue you. In chapter 3, one like son of the gods appears with Daniel's friends in the fiery furnace to demonstrate God's Emmanuel principle. I am right here with you. In chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's restoration from animal-like insanity, which we looked at Wednesday, communicates God's vital message to his own idolatrous people, I restore the humble. It is important but gracious contrast. Chapter 5 reveals the writing on the wall that humbles an arrogant King Belshazzar and discloses God's loving warning of judgment to all people in all times. I judge the proud. And now we come here in chapter 6. The climax of Daniel's experience in, in, in ancient Babylon turned the Medo-Persians. And here it is, a profile in courage. But we see what sort of man Daniel is. And we begin in verses 1 to 5 that Daniel was a man of godliness. Now we're introduced to Daniel in verse 1 of chapter 6, at least for, for us. He's actually introduced at the end of chapter 5. But... Um, but, but clearly we're in a transition from the fall of Babylon to the takeover of the Medo-Persians. And there is significant debate regarding the identity of Darius. Uh, most scholars agree uh, he is connected or is himself Cyrus of, of the Persians. If, if you want to see an example of that, Verse 28 of Daniel 6, So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And Some scholars see the two as the same person. You need to know that as a matter of debate. We've yet to find a King Darius, is my understanding. I don't know all the issues or how all that is decided, and uh, that would distract us. So we will move and march forward. Regardless, Darius delegates his kingdom by appointing 120 what are called satraps in his kingdom, and among them is Daniel. Now, we actually know quite a bit about how the satrap system works in the ancient world, and what you basically have is not too much of a difference of a system that we have now. You have, if we could use the word satraps, we would have satraps with, with broader authority. Let's call them Governors. And then we would have, uh, um, satraps with lower authority, but still significant authority, and we might call them mayors, just, just to use a modern language here. You got something similar going on in Rome, right? Most systems are like this. It's a, it's a, it's a system of delegation. So Pilate is, uh, and Herod is our, our uh, governors, if you will. And under them are people, and above them are, are people who have larger areas. Nevertheless, Daniel was a numbered among this group of governmental leaders. And while this is happening, and daniel being appointed this by the Medo-Persians, remember that Nehemiah and Ezra are leading people to uh, the promised land, and, and the remnant is returning, and, and they, through their leadership, uh, along with Haggai and Zerubbabel and others, are rebuilding the wall for protection in the temple for worship. So all this is happening at, at, at roughly the same time. And notice the language in verse three of chapter six. Then, then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was with him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now, who does that sound like? If you came Wednesday night, you should already know the answer. It's Joseph. The similarities and the overlap between Joseph and Daniel are, are in abundance. And here's another one. Uh, that the spirit of God was upon Joseph and he was blessed in all that he did and all that he accomplished. So too, the same is with Daniel. Daniel. Well, we would think that is good news. We have someone in our midst whom the Lord is blessing, and everything he does is good, and that is good for the kingdom. But you cannot override uh, jealousy among humanity. Uh, Whenever someone achieves, we feel like um, that that should be us achieving. We get jealous, we get um, uh, angry, and that builds animosity. If you've been in the corporate world or even uh, with state jobs, no doubt it's the same thing because now they're going to get the promotion over you right that sort of stuff or or if your neighbor they come home with that brand new car right I've told the story before my my our, our neighbor growing up mom and dad is a graduate grew up with my father and one day he brought home some old classic car and you know my dad's mechanic loves cars and everything there is to know about cars and so what was dad doing that evening? He was on online looking to find. His dream car, right? Well, he he didn't. He wasn't doing that before our neighbor brought home a car like that. You know, that is human nature. And so, even though we want to celebrate with Daniel, his colleagues are not as excited about it. We see that in verses four to five. A couple of things to note here. First of all, the conniving say traps that are going to conspire against Daniel. They were likely few in number. They're introduced in verse four, and I do think that's an important point. I feel like I have to point that out as as, as a pastor. It is my experience uh, that conspiracies like this in the name of the majority usually reflect a very small vocal few. Preacher, people have been saying, can I translate that for you? Me and one other person have been saying. That's usually the way that works. And all you have to do is say, well, you know, this seems pretty serious. Uh, would you share with me who some of these other people are? And I'd love to sit down with each and every one of you individually and as a group so that we can work through, through some things. Well, no, I don't think that'll be necessary. You just need to know people have been talking, right? You know, and it's funny. It, this, is, this is free. The person who represents the majority uh, are always like people who just love drama and conflict. You ever notice that? The humble and the meek. They approach those things very differently, right? Well, that's enough of my issues. But however, what you need to know is that political uh, scientists and sociologists actually have developed a theory that seems pretty true, that if you want to change a culture, a society, a workplace, a church, or whatever, all it takes is a vocal three and a half percents. Now, I want you to pause and think, that makes absolute sense. It is less than like a, a what, a tenth of percent of people who struggle with gender dysphoria. And yet, notice what's happened since Obergefell in 2015. How many people were were, uh, protesting Disney didn't complain about Florida? It was like 12 people. But it's a very vocal 12 people. And Disney, you know, employs, you know, thousands upon thousands of people. All it takes is a very vocal, motivated 3.5% of people. If only there were at least 3.5% Christians in our city and our country. Well, nevertheless, by the way, that's known as the 3.5% rule. That's free. So I do believe they are a vocal minority. Secondly, I want you to notice that they could not exploit Daniel's integrity, and so they targeted his faith. Again, it's, it's, it's in verse four. The high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel and with regard to his kingdom. They could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. And then you go down. It says, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it with his law, with the law of his God. You see, you see the strategy? One can imagine someone came in the middle of the day and, confiscated his computer, did a thorough study of everything on it. They checked his work log. They searched for anything, anything that they might be able to use against him. One of the harsh realities I find with our current system, both in the public sphere and the private sphere, is that there are so many rules, regulations, laws, and everything else. The reality is, you sitting there, you're probably breaking one of them. We joke about like laws that you know um, you, you can't wear something on a. Tuesday, you know, at six o'clock, I don't know, something, something random, right? You could Google those, Those are still laws on the book. We can joke about those, but those are actually, there are some enforced laws and regulations and whatnot, whom we have no idea that they even exist. They seem so small, they're not promoted and whatnot. Let me give you an example of this. Years ago, the the, the church raised money to buy a bouncy house. We have a bouncy house here, used it at our carnival uh, last month, and uh, it's been, been a real asset for us, a lot of fun. Kids love it, and it's easy to put up and easy to take down, it's heavy, but it's good to go. And I remember the, the day before we were going to use it the first time, I was talking to a pastor friend of mine in another denomination. I said, Yeah, man, we just got a bounce. He goes, Oh, that's good. Have you registered it yet? I thought, What do you mean? Did I register it? I thought maybe you're supposed to contact the company that made it, you know, because you get, if you buy appliance, if you register it, we'll send you uh, coupons you'll never use and we'll, we'll you know, uh, track everything about you. I thought that's what he meant. No, 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 man. You, you, you got, you, before you use it, you got to contact the state. And they got to come down and do all this sort of stuff. Oh, I didn't know that. I, I, I talked to, to our, our secretary, I talked to deacons and other staff. Like, did, did anyone know about this? I didn't have any idea. And the guy says, yeah, we didn't know about it either. Until someone found out about it, right? And, and then so, so to this day, every year, uh, one of the hardworking state employees comes and uh, uh, they come and do an inspection. It takes about 30 seconds. We pay them 100 bucks, and we're good for another year. Every time we use it, we're supposed to give them a head, heads up. This is free, by the way. And every time we use it off our property, we have to, have to, have to, by law, give them a heads up and let them know about two weeks in advance where we're going to be and all that sort of stuff. It's, it's crazy. Because it's, it's, again, this is all free. I had it as an illustration, but now I'm just going crazy with it. Um, it's, it's, it's grouped with like people who do carnival stuff, who travel all over the place. It's regulated stuff. Well, we never thought about that sort of stuff. You've probably got something on your car, in your car, around your car, near your car that, that, that you're violating some regulation. So So if you want to catch me guilty of something, you will. You will. Come to my house, you'll find something. Uh, the, the, the rail going up to the steps is probably a half an inch too low or too high or sideways or crits and daisy. I don't know. There's something that we are violating. And yet despite that, they couldn't find anything with Daniel. Now, what does it tell you that after auditing his work, they found no hint of corruption or incompetency? And he's a state worker nonetheless. All they discovered was Daniel was a man of faith, he was a man of honor, he was a man of hard work, he was a man of integrity. I can't help but wonder, what would people find on us? And that leads, thirdly, we've already hinted at this, Daniel's faith was not a private faith. Throughout history, when nothing else works, you can always blame someone's religion make their faith look radical, dangerous, or treasonous, and it becomes a lot easier to stir things up. Have you noticed this trend? Have you noticed this trend in our culture? Of course you believe that. You're one of those Christian bigots. When Christianity was established and the apostles died, you have, you have the rise of the early church known as the patristics. And among them were, were a group of people known as the uh, apologists, and this would be Justin Martyr, Tertullian, and some others. They had three charges they were constantly having to defend the gospel against. Number one, they had to explain that Christians were not atheists. After all, in in a pagan culture where everyone worshiped the gods, here comes the Christian to say, we don't worship the gods, we worship a Galilean carpenter. And so for the Romans, they made them atheists. They didn't worship the gods. Secondly, they were accused of, of committing incest, practicing incest with one another. Okay, this this may sound strange, but it shouldn't. After all, they, they would participate in something called a love feast, which is centered around communion. And at that love feast, they would constantly refer to each other as brother and sister, including married couples. Now, if you're an outsider, you don't know the, the lingo, what does that sound like to you? Love feast, brothers and sisters? Sounds like they're all from eastern Kentucky. Thirdly, they were accused of cannibalism and here you have these incestuous love feasts where brothers and sisters seem to come together and do whatever you do at a love feast and get this while there they eat the body of some dude and they drink his blood haven't you heard about that you don't want to be a christian do you so they were constantly having to deal with these charges Regardless, it demonstrates that Daniel's faith was not a privatized faith. He didn't keep it to himself. Rather, he lived openly and honestly before everyone. This is why when they said, well, if we can't get him based off off of integrity, we can always attack his faith because everyone knows what his faith is. Everyone knows he's consistent in practicing his faith. Came across a story in 2011 from a British newspaper that did a story about how Christians are now hiding in the closets. This is to say that, that for someone to come out in British society and increasingly our society as a Christian was, was, was a, a, a moment of real courage. From the article, uh, the, the journalist asked, do your colleagues know you're a Christian? This, this person is, is anonymous. Are you joking, the Christian says? Of course not. It makes things very difficult. The city isn't immoral anymore. It is moral." But if my boss thought I was relying on prayer to get me through the day, he'd look down on me. It would make me seem irrational. I tell him I'm going to physio when I go to church. Now, I don't recommend lying, okay? But I do think increasingly we can be sympathetic to that. If you can't attack a Christian's integrity, you can always attack that he's a Christian. That's what Daniel is going through here. It's ironic, isn't it, that to come out of closet used to mean one thing. But now everyone's out of the closet and requires no real courage. But to come out and say, I am a Christian and I believe this lifestyle and these decisions are sinful and, un- and will result in the judgment of God and are bad for society, that takes courage. It takes real courage. But Daniel was a godly man of integrity who served well. Not only is he, is he a man of godliness, he's a man of prayer in verses 6 to 13. The vocal few arrive in verse six in the oval office of the Middle Persians, and they convince the king to target Daniel. Except they never mention Daniel by his name, and this is real evil. When when you you you, you come up with a policy to to punish a single person, right? That's the coward's way of doing things. They claim that everyone agreed. Right? Knows that language. Verse seven. Well, every, all the other satraps have agreed to this, right? Yet no such agreement is remotely possible. Think about how massive the Babylonian kingdom is. And now bring the Medo-Persian kingdom on top of it. Some massive. They got people from across the the whole kingdom that they haven't talked to in years. To get a message from one end to the other would take months. No, I don't think everyone has agreed to this. But there's there's a petition, right? They make this petition in verses 7 and 9. And that is that the king would make a decree, a 30-day decree... That no one can pray to any god or any priest. The word used there is man. Generic word, but likely you think of it in terms of a priest. Except to Darius. Now this does not mean Darius is accepting for himself that he is a divine one. But remember what's happened is that you have this change from the Babylonians to the Medo-Persians. And here comes Darius, who's, who's going to help with this transition. And loyalty uh, is going to be very important here, right? Because everyone else was loyal to Babylon, and now they're suddenly going to be loyal to the guy that defeated Babylonians? I don't think so, right? For many. And so this would be, most scholars would say, a likely a test of loyalty. Those who, who uh, obey this petition for 30 days are probably people you can trust, Those who violate it are the ones who have shown that you can't trust them under this this new kingdom. And thus the vocal few manipulate Darius and weaponize the law in a period of, of turmoil for their own benefits. So what does Daniel do? It's given to us in verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, pulled out his phone, and whined about it on anonymous accounts on Twitter. Right? It's, it's a new translation, but, but the new New King James will have that. That's, that's not what it says, is it? He went to his upper chamber, chamber. Open towards Jerusalem, he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks for his God as he had done previously. What courage that is. What boldness that is. Doesn't matter what laws you pass, Daniel's going to pray three times a day. Doesn't matter where you put Daniel, he's going to pray three times a day. He's going to figure out where Jerusalem is, he's going to pray towards Jerusalem. That's the promised land. He's in exile, but he believes in the God of Israel. This is an act of defiance, isn't it? But it's ultimately an act of obedience. In pagan cultures, obedience to God uh, for Christians and for Daniel here is often an act of defiance. And that is becoming increasingly true today, by the way. A good example of this is found again in the early church. They were viewed as treasonous on top of being atheists, cannibals, and incestuous. They were viewed as treasonous because they would never proclaim Caesar as Lord. They would only proclaim Jesus as Lord. You talk about a political statement. You talk about a radical statement. It cost them their very lives. Daniel's routine is impressive. The average Christian wouldn't spend three minutes praying to God, let alone three times a day in deep prayer and worship. Notice what Daniel does. Daniel, three times a day, he complains to God. No, that's, again, that's not what he says. He gives thanks to God. Thanks to God. And notice again the context. When he knew that this had passed, it passed the Senate, passed the House with flying colors. The president signed it, and by July 1st, it became law. And it is July 1st. What is his response? He goes back through his routine as he always did, he did the same thing he did before, and he gave thanks. Thanks for, for what? He knows his life is in danger. He knows his colleagues are plotting against him. He knows that prayer is sufficient for execution. Maybe what Daniel shows here is that thanksgiving is bigger than personal conveniences. Daniel was thankful for the opportunity the Lord has given him in this pagan society as an exile. I want you really to meditate upon that. Because the average Christian today would complain online, whine to God, and that is as far as their spiritual depth will go. When we learn to give thanks to the Lord in all things, then we can really grow and have the courage to face troubling times. Well, of course, you, you know how this is going to work, right? They, they, they've got the law passed. Their target is Daniel. And they do that in verses 11 to, 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 to 13. And I want you to notice when they come to the king how they describe Daniel. First of all, right, they come to wine to the king. I bet they have that whiny voice, right? Oh, king, didn't, didn't you say no one could do this? That Daniel, right? But notice how he's, how he's described two ways. One, he's described as a racial outsider. Notice the language. Who is one of the exiles from Judah. And here I was thinking that racism was only an American problem. It's a human problem. doesn't matter how hard he worked, how long he worked, or how successful he was. He is always going to be a racial outsider. It's evil. It's evil. This has always been a problem with humanity. It still is. Secondly, he is described as disloyal to the king. He pays no attention to you, O oh king. Regardless, Daniel demonstrates what sort of man he is. He is a man of prayer, even when prayer praying is controversial, mocked, and prosecuted. Finally, as we have said, Daniel was a man of prayer. A man of courage, rather, verses 14 to 24. The last few weeks, I've gotten to watch the Lexington Legends twice. And I love watching... Baseball live, right? A TV, you know. If if the Reds are actually good, so that one year I was able to watch some some Reds. But but otherwise, I, I don't watch a lot of baseball. I, uh, sometimes a little while I watch, but uh, watch on TVs there. But to watch it live, just baseball. There's there's nothing better than baseball. Bring 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 your your bride with you and the kids if they're well behaved. It's it's excellent. One of my favorite memories as a dad when we first moved to here. A friend of mine gave me four tickets. He couldn't go, and Banjo uh, was probably four years old. She just danced in the aisle the whole time. My my son had that young man's ego where he knew everything there was to know about baseball. So we sat through the whole time, talked baseball with a little kid. I mean, I just loved it, you know. And I love baseball. But growing up, my dad, he, my dad was a baseball purist. And by that, I mean he he thinks Pete Rose is is the ideal baseball player. That's basically what I mean by this. And and I've learned this over the years. That's that's what he means by. It. But how baseball For example, he thinks it should be played a certain way. First of all, if you get walked by the pitcher, you're up there to bat, four balls, and you walk, you had better not, in his book, walk to first base. You run. You run. Because if that catcher ain't paying no attention, and you're already at first, maybe you can get the second. Or maybe something happens. You run. I mean, the quicker you get the first, the faster you can get the second, right? So whenever dad would coach our baseball teams, he, he would demand the whole team, if you get walked, you run. Why is it called a walk? I don't care, son, right? Reminds me of the old school teacher. This is free. Uh, she would always yell, uh, it's a sidewalk, not a side run. Dad believed the opposite, right? I know it's called a walk, but you're going to run, right? Likewise, he, he thought that whenever you ran the bases, Right? It's a diamond field that you run around the bases. I'll let you figure that one out. And, and uh, whenever you would run the bases, it is a cardinal sin in Dad's book with baseball to look at the ball. There are two people who are there to help you to watch the ball for you. It is not your job to watch the ball, he believed. You run with everything you have. When you run the first, you look at him, and then he'll tell you if you're going to run the second. But you better not slow down on your way the first, right? You have to run past it. He wanted us to go all the way to the outfield, right, and running, right? And if he says, go second, you run as fast as you can the second. All the while, you're running the second. You're looking at your third base coach, and you don't look at that ball, or Dad's going to punish you, right? Another thing Dad believed in is every time you heard the sound of the bat, because we play with metal bats as kids, the, the bat hit the ball. You do not look to see if it was foul or not. You just run. It is not your job to determine if it's fair or foul. There are umpires there to do that, right? So you, you just swing. If you hear it, you take off. And he would get on us. He would get on. I mean, it could be obvious to everyone. It's a foul ball. Could have hit us in the chest from swinging, right? Don't care. You run, right? Dad, Dad has a particular way of running, of, of playing baseball. One summer, we were at a friend's house, baseball season, of course. And uh, while we were there, uh, a dog chased me. I was a little kid. Scared me to death. This dog started barking and just went right after me. I ran as hard as I could, found like a a table, and I jumped on top of the table and sat there. And I thought I'd get sympathy from my parents. Later, Dad pulled me to his side. He said, son, that dog chased you. You ran real fast. He said, I sure did, Dad. I scared That's the way you should run the first base when you hit the ball, right? That's, That's all I got from him, Right? Right? No one corrected the dog. No one put the dog inside because animals don't belong inside. But he didn't do any of that sort of stuff, right? right? Dad, Dad was a purist when it came to this sort of stuff. Dad wanted us to play a certain way. Courage and boldness. I think Daniel demonstrates that. I mean, think about it. He did not run from the lions. He turned to face them. I love that. I love that. It doesn't take the king long to discover that he has been had. The real motive was the vocal few wanted to get rid of Daniel. Their interest wasn't in his honor, but, but Daniel's destruction. And you can almost see that his frustration is as much towards himself as it was towards the vocal few. How could have I have been duped that easily? And so, there's no way around it. Even though he, he hired all the lawyers to find a loophole, there is none. Daniel is then cast to the lion's den. By the way, in case you want to know, uh, the Medo-Persians utilized a variety of means of execution. We know that they kept caged lions for such moments. And it's, it's not uncommon in other cultures. The Romans did it for Christians in the gladiatorial games. Well, again, for the sake of time, the king hopes Daniel's God will deliver him, and he spends the night um, free of rest, fasting for Daniel. You know what I find interesting about how this story is told, particularly this part of the story, is that it's told not from Daniel's perspective, but from Darius's perspective. We, we would accept because everything so far has been Daniel this, Daniel that, Daniel prayed, right? But then all of a sudden it's, well, King Darius you know, said to Daniel. King Darius went home and fasted. King Darius was really worried about Daniel. And we hear very little of Daniel, other than he's been thrown into the lion's den. He just leaves the the, the stage, exit left. So about Darius, which is interesting. Daniel goes into the lion's den with courage. Darius goes to his palace scared to death. Interesting, isn't it? He was a real man of courage. If it be the Lord's will for Daniel to climb the corporate or political ladder and gain untold wealth, power, influence, then thanks be to God for it. If it be the same Lord's will for Daniel to be cast down and to be fed to lions in shame and dishonor, then thanks to the same God. This is where we err as American evangelicals. We prioritize safety over faithfulness. I've been a pastor long enough that when, when the sheep feel scared, they start to move. They start to vocalize a lot of insecurities. We rarely respond to fear with courage. We respond like she with animosity, with anxiety, with uncertainty. What are we going to do? Well, Daniel cared very little about his safety. He cared only about the Lord's honor. And that's why he explains, Look, 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 King, I haven't done anything wrong to you. I'm a man who has honored you. And so dares returns at first light. This seems to have been a a common practice in the ancient world that if you survive something like this by first light, you're still alive. Even if you're barely alive, the state then has an obligation to, you know, you know, rescue you, revive you, whatnot. Uh, And we have examples of this ancient uh, world of people surviving. People survived crucifixion every once in a while. We have examples of that, you know. well, I doubt Dears expects to find an unarmed, unharmed Daniel. Um, but maybe somehow, some way, he has survived. He merely hopes that Daniel is still breathing. And to his surprise, Daniel is unharmed, and he explains what happened. So what does the king do? He does what any ancient king will do. Remember, this is a test of loyalty. These other satraps prove their disloyalty. He has them and their families executed. So what do we do with this? Well, the story ends in verses 25 to 28 with Darius praising both Daniel and the God of Israel. And let us not miss that this is everything Israel was supposed to be. Abraham's descendants were to be a blessing to the nations. And so God, through Israel, was going to draw the nations to himself with Israel as the instrument of that grace. Daniel, along with God's deliverance, is doing precisely that. The king will pray to his pagan gods, but he discovers it was Daniel's God who actually delivered him. Very similar to the story of Joseph, as we've said. In fact, instead of just going back to Joseph, maybe we can go back to chapter 3 with the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Rakshak and Benny, as VeggieTales likes to call them. Consider the story here and the story there. In both cases, the men were arrested for defying the states. Both considered proper worship as priority and idolatry as the ultimate highest evil. In both stories, the heroes are rescued unharmed. In both stories, the king marvels at the power of Yahweh. In both stories, the king gives a public declaration regarding the men's faith and the men's God. In both stories, notice this, a mighty angel comes to rescue them. If you want to see it in Daniel's stories, in verse 22, my God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouth. You remember how the, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went? You remember when Nebuchadnezzar said, did we throw three men in the fiery furnace? Why do I see four? And the fourth looks like a son of man, a son of the gods. What's Daniel say? You threw me into the pits. But the angel that was there for Rakshak and Bindi is the angel who came to rescue me. Does this story sound familiar? The God who delivers does so by entering into our suffering and rescuing his people. Isn't that what we see in Rakshak and Bindi and Daniel here? God enters into the suffering of his people to rescue them from certain death. That is not just Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel's story. That is our story as people of faith. The God in Christ, who I believe is the pre-incarnate uh, uh, angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, enters into our story to rescue and deliver all those who live by faith. And I'd like to end with the way... Darius ends because I think it speaks for itself verse 26 Darius says the latter part of the verse the God of Daniel is the living God enduring forever his kingdom shall never be destroyed his dominion shall be to the end he delivers and rescues he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth he who saved Daniel from the power of the lions. And how does the story truly end? A man in exile, not in a pits, but on a foreign island. He sees a vision of the resurrected ascended Savior. What does he see? The one who is like a lion, who is lamb. Jesus conquers by being conquered. That's the beauty of the gospel. Let's pray.